instead of realizing that like as much as I try to, you know, use my brake toggles and use my brain and use my smartphone and use my forecasting and my inReach to be in control of the situation, that the reality is that I was never once in control of the situation. Happy Monday, folks. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Welcome to the show. Let's just jump right into it. Benjamin Jordan was on the show before episode 524, I believe it was. Yep, 524. He was literally paragliding the length of the Canadian Rockies, and there's a documentary out about that. Never been done before. So unreal. Some of the stories would blow your mind. Some of my favorite stories I've ever heard on this show were from that episode. And this one, I, I, I was a little bit awestruck by just the the, the ability for, for Benjamin to tell a story, to talk about things so nonchalantly, and just to do something so massively crazy, which is literally flying 3000 kilometers you know from Mexico to Canada essentially along the length of the of the Rocky Mountains which is just nuts and why he did that was to follow the length or follow the the route that the monarch butterfly takes every year if you don't know monarch butterflies uh, beautiful you know uh, orange and black butterflies you see them you google a picture of them you'll know exactly what i'm talking about they migrate up from up in canada down to mexico every year one generation will migrate all the way from canada down to mexico to this very specific region they all accumulate on these trees get so there's so many butterflies on the trees that the limbs break it's unbelievable and then over the course of three generations, they make their way back to Canada after the winter is over. And so they're doing that trip now. And last year, around this time, is when Jordan was doing his trip, flying the path that they take from Mexico to Canada. Unbelievable journey. And his documentary about this experience uh, called Fly Monarca is coming out in three days. It's going to air Thursday at midnight Eastern Standard Time at flymonarca.com. That is in the show notes if you want to see that, hear more. Um, But we're going to get right into the episode. But before we do, I know Jordan's a big fan of this, used gear. Used gear is what helps essentially half my adventures possible. Most of my adventures are dependent on being able to afford the time off, but being able to afford the experience, which obviously a huge part of that is getting used gear. The best place to find great used gear or to sell used gear uh, is rerouted.co. That is rerouted.co. And basically, instead of you know your gear going to the trash or sitting in your closet forever, rerouted is a place where you can get that gear online, in the hands of someone that can use it right now for an adventure or go find yourself some used gear that you can uh, you can use on your next adventure. Definitely encourage you to check out rerouted.co. I went to a yard sale this morning. I'm a huge fan of, you know, reusing things and keeping things keeping things going, especially gear that helps us do adventures. Anyway, without further ado, here is Benjamin Jordan. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're talking to 
pretty pretty much a, a veteran of the show at this point. Um, one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. And w- with the first episode being episode 524, now I'm expecting this one's going to be just as good, if not better. And that is Benjamin Jordan we're talking to. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mason. This is awesome. Yeah. So, so you mentioned this right before I hit record that you're in Mexico. And I always ask first, where are you coming from? And wherever that is, is if that's not home, where's home? So wh- what are you doing in Mexico? Well, we're kind of stuck here because um, the expedition that um, uh, we're going to talk about, when that ended uh, in September, I crossed the border back into Canada. Lindsay couldn't cross into Canada because of the border closure uh, that's been in effect for over a year now due to the pandemic. So we needed to work on editing a film and and doing all sorts of publicity stuff for the the expedition. And um, we needed to go to a place where we could both be. Now I couldn't be in the States because I'd used up my six months there for during the expedition being Canadian and she couldn't be in Canada. So Mexico was the closest place that we could both actually be legally. And uh, that's, that's where we're at. Well, you know, the last time we talked, you were on a bus up uh, up in British Columbia. Now we're talking and you're in Mexico. Um, how's the experience down there going? That's obviously a, 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 an adventure in itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, we, we picked a pretty remote little area to be because we, we, you know, just in the name of, of staying healthy and that, we, we didn't want to cross the paths of too many people, but realize now that that was kind of a recipe for going mad because we, we really don't see anyone other than ourselves. Uh, and when we do see people, you know, because they're just passing and our Spanish is not great, it's hard to really build any kind of relationships. Um, not that this time, you know, in the universe is really a time to be building new relationships with strangers anyway. Right. So um, it's, it's kind of crazy. We kind of live in a bit of a shoebox here down in Mexico, just surrounded by coconut trees. Uh, I've been learning to surf. That was the reason for coming to where we're at. Uh, just to have something to kind of stay fit, you know, not, you know, I, I like to eat Mexican food, so I gotta gotta stay active somehow. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, pretty much, I I edit. I've been editing this film. It's like a it'll be like an eighty minute film, and I pretty much do that like twelve to fifteen hours a day. So a lot of a lot of computer. Oh man, a lot yeah. of screen time. Wow. Um... I get it though. I totally get it. This show's a lot of work and people are like, oh, you get to talk to all these people all the time. I'm like, yeah. And if I'm not careful, that's all I do is talk to them <laughs> and not actually get out there. But for you, you're editing film of something you actually did. For me, I'm always editing stories that other people are telling me like like, like we're doing now. But tell us about this this adventure you did, because because the, the last one we had, John, you you, you did uh, that you were paragliding the length of the Canadian Rockies over this the endless chain over places people had never even tried to do this, and for this experience was a similar concept, but for a totally different reason. Yeah, and the just uh, you know a big shot overview. This expedition makes that endless chain which was the complete limits of anything that i i ever thought i could do it makes that seem small 
And if I'm not mistaken, the limits of the sport. And the limits of the sport. Yeah. I mean, the endless chain was, was, uh, you know, uh, uh, North America or an American record, if not a world record at, at 1200 kilometers. And now we're talking closer to 3000. So Jeez. for me to, to, to really put it into perspective though, I, I really need to take you back to, to the start where it all started, um, which was in fact, uh, in Mexico as well, uh, not too far from where we're at right now. Um, Lindsay and I were, were paragliding and, um, we were about maybe 40 kilometers away from where we'd started. And uh, all of a sudden the clouds sort of overdeveloped and without the sun heating the earth, there's no lift. And we ended up landing somewhere we hadn't planned on uh, up high, kind of closer to this big volcano. And so we're up there at about 3000 meters and packing up and are kind of taken aback by the amount of insects and, and butterflies that are flying around in this kind of alpine meadow. And we see that they're coming from this forest area, kind of coming from the forest and going to this little little uh, puddle of water, really no more than a puddle, but all kind of congregating around the puddle, going back to the forest. So we go into the forest and I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of crazy. And then I look down and I see, when I look down, I'm, I'm looking at what I realize are butterflies everywhere, dead on the ground. And for a moment, like, my heart stops because I'm just thinking like, oh, damn, like, where am I? Like, like what's, what's causing all these butterflies to die? Like, this is, this is, this is weird. And then I look up and I look around, look around us. And I see that all the trees, they kind of look strange. They look kind of like fuzzy, like there's some sort of strange fungus growing on them. The branches, they're all brown. They kind of have these same bumps. They look like, it looks like fungus. And then, um, the clouds that had shaded us and caused us to land start to kind of part and some sun starts to come into the forest. And then all of a sudden, wherever the sun is, goes from this like weird fungusy brown bumps to bright orange. And then all of a sudden that bright orange starts flying around. And I realized that all that brown bumpy stuff on all the trunks of the trees, on all the branches is in fact butterflies that are overwintering at this very, very specific spot in Mexico, like specific, like the size of like a, like a high school playground or like a, a public school play, playground. Millions and millions and millions and millions of them. So many that you can't even see the trees. So many that they're literally weighing the branches of the trees down. Butterflies are doing this, such that the, the branches kind of look like these big dreadlocks coming off of these trees, like a Dr. Seuss thing. And we realized that we're in one of very few overwintering sites of monarch butterflies that have flown all the way there from Canada. And we can't believe our eyes. You can't hear the sound of traffic. You can't hear the sound of the wind. Literally now, the whole forest is full of butterflies. All you can hear is the sound of millions and millions of butterfly wings flapping all around you. Oh my gosh. Like a blizzard of, of, of orange. Now, uh, going every which way. And so, of course, you know, I go back to, you know, where we're from, we hitchhike, we get back, and I start telling people, and they're like, oh, yeah, the butterflies, you, you were over the butterflies. And so I start looking it up, and I realize that these butterflies, the craziest thing, okay, so they not are, they're not only the, the world's furthest migrating butterfly flying over 7,000 kilometers return trip. 
they do this over four generations. And while that might sound like, well, yeah, of course, you know, they're an insect, you know, they might live three months. All right. But they make it all the way from the specific mountaintop in Mexico, all the way to Canada, takes them three generations. And then they fly back in one generation, they call it the super generation, not just to Mexico, not just to the same state in Mexico, to the same bloody mountaintop where their great grandparent overwintered one year ago. Uh, unbelievable. It's so bizarre. It, they, it, it, can be, it can be explained how they have an understanding of where north is and, and where south is. They have an internal clock. And so kind of like lobsters, I guess they always go north. I, that's what I heard anyway. I don't know anything about lobsters. The, the monarchs, it, they, they understand how they, they are able to pick a heading and, and keep it. Because with the sun's position and with their internal clock, they can figure out a direction like sailors did back in the day. But they've moved them off their course. They've they put stickers on them so that they're tagged and they can and they can trace them. They've moved them off their course, say east one thousand kilometers as they were heading back down south towards this very very specific mountaintop, and expected that they would still go south, but not make the adjustment to go now southwest to to correct you know that they've been taken off track, but they did. They actually changed their course as if they had. A, like a, a legit internal GPS. And this phenomenon is something that science can, is, is not able to completely explain. So I thought to myself, wait a second, these little guys, these little orange, you know, post-it notes is, is what is literally all the credit I gave to, to a monarch butterfly is not just flying all the way to Canada and back to Mexico it over four generations is able to communicate how to get back to this very pinpoint on a map. I've completely underestimated this tiny little life form. What else am I underestimating in our natural universe? And am I underestimating myself as well? What supernatural powers do I as a human have that is similar to this incredible thing that can't be explained by science that the monarch possesses. So my whole life changed right then with that question. And I became completely hell-bent on figuring it out, not by becoming a scientist and making some sort of you know, uh, new re revelation in science, but by trying to emulate as best as I could the monarch's journey by becoming the you know the first person to try ever to fly from Mexico all the way to Canada, but without power, with um, only using you know natural elements, the same as the monarch does. A, a wing that looked you know similar to a monarch's wing in color. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah. So I I, I definitely had to get I had to get the custom colors for sure. <laughs> well, Benjamin, it, it, it sounds like this just. Just realizing all this, learning this, stumbling upon it, honestly, which is the most remarkable thing about it, that you were just awestruck by this. I mean, it's miraculous, but it's happening. It's not. It's not a fairy tale. This actually happens every year, every day. These things are making that journey back or to Mexico 
or back from or to Mexico. And so for you, um, being, you know, having the history you do, you obviously thought, you know, I, I could also make this journey. Um, what began to kind of, I don't know, what what started happening there? What did it take? What did you started start needing to get ready and, and to do for yourself to to retrace this this path that the butterflies do? Well, that's a that's a great question because um, what I want to say is that although I put a ton of prep into this expedition, I basically just spent four months uh, in Mexico completely saturated in planning this project uh, from, you know, picking the, like I was saying, the custom colors for the paraglider to getting some sponsors to, to route planning and trying to figure out, you know, how much food I could carry, you know, where am I going to launch? Where am I going to land? Where am I going to hike if I need to? All this kind of stuff. 99% of all that work went completely out the window on day one. And that that's something that I, I, I really want to keep in mind and that I, you know, would really encourage anyone to keep in mind, uh, you know, when, when they want to get going on an expedition that they think, well, I just need a bit more time to plan. I just need a bit more time to plan. You know, so many of those things that you think you're going to need to have figured out, you know, you've got solutions for, they're not even problems. It, when, when you finally get to the start line, the real problems are, are that require solutions are problems that you couldn't have even imagined because you just weren't looking at it. So all of that to say, you know, this mini moral inside of that is like, don't waste too much time planning because, you know, you, you, it's not going to help you in the end. You just need to be out there trying and, and failing and figuring it out. That to say that we had initiated, we, we had initially planned to start this expedition from El Paso, Texas, and to essentially just follow the Great Divide all the way north. It seemed like the most obvious line. Is that a line that butterflies follow? Because I know they can, you know, go from all over the place to that specific spot in Mexico. They, they, they prefer um, to head more towards the Great Lakes region um, because of a specific plant, and I'll talk a bit more about it later, called milkweed which is the only plant that they can lay their eggs on because it's the only plant that their larvae can eat. So they uh, do spread out across uh, a large part of the United States as they head north. Um, but they do tend to go through the uh, prefer an area called the Corn Belt, which is uh, further towards the Great Lakes, more you know, sort of central U.S., so I've got to pick the mountains because I need to be able to launch from mountains. I need to hike up mountains and launch from them because I'm doing this without any sort of power, without being towed up or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm a little bit west of them, but I want to be as close to them as possible. So I'm going to take the divide, basically the first big line of mountains, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, going up through the States. And to me, that just doesn't seem like a really obvious thing, but it was, you know, while I was sitting there, um, sort of doing some last minute research uh, in El Paso that I realized like, you know, the, the mountains, they don't just go north, they actually go kind of northwest. And a huge problem that I, I've dealt with, for instance, on the endless chain was, you know, I was also going northwest uh, along the Canadian Rockies, and you have so much west wind that you're almost constantly battling like a cross headwind. 
And so it just kind of feels like you're constantly battling a headwind. And that if I was to start that far southeast of my final destination, which is, you know, just the, the north end of the, the continental divide in the United States, I was going to be pushing into a westerly wind pretty much the whole way. And um, probably ending up having to walk a lot of sections heading west just to be able to contend with that kind of wind. So right then and there, you know, 50% of my planning went down the drain because I, I moved to just south of Tucson, Arizona, so that I would have more of a uh, sort of a, a straight north line uh, to get to, to Canada. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of, kind of rambling, but I, I'm saying like that, that was such a huge, felt like such an idiot. Like I was so certain, you know, I told all the sponsors, oh, that's what we're doing. Here's the map, this and that. And then on day one, I'm like, no, this is a horrible idea. Why would I have thought of that? But I couldn't, I just couldn't have figured that out until I was sitting there in El Paso looking at this, thinking like, wait, the weather outlook for forever is like hella strong west wind. I'm not going to be able to make it anywhere if I have to push into that. So. Well, well good on you for, for making that adjustment and, and having the humility to do so. And you know, being able to just change your plans, you know, pretty last minute is, is, is a skill in itself. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely, t- it took some eating some humble pie. So, but I, you know, be- before I forget to mention, um, I wanted to just, uh, share that this expedition was going to be unique because where I typically do something like this completely autonomously, um, I was autonomous on this expedition, but I wasn't completely alone because this time I had the good fortune of having my girlfriend and partner of three years, uh, Lindsay Nicole, follow me uh, in her van with all of her fancy camera equipment so that in addition to the camera work that I was able to do that I traditionally do, you know, my vlogs, my various cams that I, I run when I'm flying, that she was able to uh, follow me with some much higher end camera equipment, including a really cool drone. So that was all in the name of creating a, like a next level documentary, which I'm super proud to be, you know, almost finished editing right now. And so often during this conversation, I'll say we, and who we is, is basically me doing my expedition and Len- Lindsay crossing my path every few days, whenever she can get to me. Uh, with, you know, with all of her fancy camera stuff. When you decided to go, can you tell us, did, did you decide to leave also when the butterflies typically left, like try to recreate the journey to, to that extent? Yeah, totally. They they fly from, let's just say Mexico City, which was half, halfway down Mexico. Like that's crazy. That's really far. All the way to, to the border where I started and then keep going all the way to Canada. So I didn't fly the Mexican portion. Uh, for a number of reasons, um, but uh, started at the border of Arizona and Mexico. What was also, that like to start at the border? Pretty crazy. I, you know, one thing I totally didn't forgot to mention is that the the whole lockdown and all that stuff that happened like literally like two weeks before we started this expedition. Oh wow! So we couldn't we we couldn't do the things like that we had wanted to do. Like I was going to cross the border from Mexico into the United States. Everything was shut down, and so we actually thought we were going to have to 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 bail on the whole expedition. And that was something that no one could have planned for. 
And literally like a day away from pulling the plug on the thing, we realized like, wait a second, like if we go back to, to Canada and like quarantine in the school bus, you know, like we're going to be stuck in a school bus for goodness knows how long, you know, we are out here in the middle of nowhere planning on seeing no one for the next, you know, four or five months. Like this is actually the safest thing for us to do. So it, it was really scary for us because we weren't sure if what we were doing was even really legal in terms of recreating in this way during a unprecedented, you know, at least in our lifetimes pandemic. Um, but that's, you know, that's what kicked it all off for us, you know, was that basically all of the stores were, were like void of food uh, and the streets were completely empty and any parks that we wanted to, to, to visit were completely shut down. And we had no idea, you know, this, this was the unknown within the unknown, within the unknown. So day one, I'm down there at this huge fence. It looks like something from medieval times. It's like 20 feet tall, made of like these sick, like five, six inch uh, iron bars that stretch, you know, 25 feet into the air. They dot the landscape six inches apart, as far as the eye can see, separating Mexico from the United States. This fence has been there apparently for like 20 years. It's not, it's not anything new. So it's very intimidating. And I reach my hand through to the Mexico side and I bring it back and all of a sudden realize like, wait a second, like this is ridiculous. I can't fly 3000 kilometers in one season. There's a good reason no one's done this before. Paragliding is a very finicky sport. You need the right weather conditions to fly cross country. And I was pushing it with the endless chain, trying to fly 1200 kilometers in the Canadian Rockies. Now I'm in the desert way outside of my element and I'm going to try to pull off 3000. I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place because I realized that I almost certainly can't do this. Like that's the, the, the logical part of my brain says that like every, every ounce of me believes that that's, that's the way it is. That's how I feel. But at the same time, I know that if I start, I'm, I'm going to finish it even if it kills me. And so there's this scary dynamic at play where I know that I can't do it, but at the same time, I won't allow myself to fail. And I've never really engaged in something like that where I have those two conflicting emotions. And so, you know, I took the first step. <laughs> I took the first step, but I'd left that fence. I left the fence and I walked straight towards a mountain that was about two kilometers north north of that that fence, and you know I I I hiked up the backside of that mountain. There were border guards everywhere stopping me, asking me what I was doing. It was hard for me to explain, like, "Hey, I'm right. trying to it's not the life. most logical thing to explain on a good day, <laughs> much less <laughs> during a pandemic." Okay. I've tried to paraglide from from Mexico to. to to Canada, you know, are you American? Well, actually, no, I'm Canadian. You know, I'm just making my way back home, you know. I'm following uh, these butterflies. <laughs> I didn't I didn't tell them that part. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want them to think that I was that crazy. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, you know, and I, I, I'd like to say that, you know, I, I hiked up that mountain and then I, I you know, 
cleared a launch from the cactus and the rocks and I, I flew on the next day, but you know, that's not how it went. Not, not, not at the start anyway. I flew from that mountain the next day, but the winds were so strong that I really couldn't move. A paraglider flies at about 35 kilometers an hour. That means if you're flying in winds that are about 35 kilometers an hour, you're literally stuck like you're on a treadmill, like you're trying to paddle upstream in a canoe at you know the, where the stream is moving as fast as you could possibly paddle. So I was stuck there in this strong west wind that would only blow me east. There was nothing I could do. And that wind held up for an entire week. So after day one, realizing like, no, I can't fly in those, in those conditions. Um, I had to just basically sit there at the bottom of that mountain by this little stream and wait for an entire week. Oh my gosh. So that's yeah. what you did. Yeah, that's what I did. But that's what do you do with your time? Oh man. I knew you, um, I know you play a, a ukulele, don't you? Well, right. So that for on this expedition, because I've, I mean, I've, I've definitely had put a lot of hours into the ukulele on previous expeditions. Uh, I wanted a new challenge, not just in paragliding, um, but uh, in, in, in music. So I um, acquired a very small five string banjo and I figured that would fit well into the sort of Americana kind of theme that I was going for. And I practiced the banjo. And so I, you know, I downloaded some tutorials onto my phone and um, I spent, you know, a week uh, playing the banjo and waiting for the, the wind to get better. I also had a book of like, su, 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 what is it? Sudoku, Sudoku, those yeah. puzzles Sudoku. you get at the, yeah, get at the grocery store. So that's what I did. And, you know, the, the craziest thing here is that um, when I'm alone on expedition. I have learned to, to deal with this feeling of like, what am I doing? I'm wasting my life. This is like valuable time. I could be doing something productive. And I learned to just feel like, no, this is good. This is, I'm, I'm growing inside, you know, just be Zen, just be Zen. Just, just don't move, just wait, be patient, you know, but to have to put my girlfriend through that too, you know, she's there to document what I'm doing, but I'm literally just playing the banjo and doing Sudoku puzzles. And so there's not a lot to document. And, you know, um, I, I am able to enjoy that kind of, uh, amount of quiet time, but I can't expect anyone else to. And I felt so bad, uh, about the situation and I felt this incredible amount of pressure to get going and just to fly regardless. But no matter how much pressure I felt, my paraglider only flies at the speed that it flies. And right, so, right. It's not like hiking or biking where you can fight the elements to a degree, you know, where yeah, it's, you know, it can be raining and storming. You can still pedal. It's slower, but, you know, you can still go. But for you, it's not just you I, can't fight the wind. It's also incredibly dangerous. Like you don't have a choice. That's that was the other thing, and and you know, and honestly, if it was just just dangerous, I probably could have swallowed that, and then made a poor choice because of how bad I felt for for like putting her through that maddening sort of wait period. But it it's it's not just that it's dangerous; it's that 
I literally won't get anywhere. I'll just end up on the ground if I'm lucky in one piece. So I can't do anything and I'm stuck there. So a week goes by, we get another semi-marginal day. Uh, I'm able to get off and I'm able to make about 60 kilometers north, which I'm stoked about. But then we end up at these smaller mountains now. It's all desert. The, the cactuses, we're getting a little bit lower. The cactus is starting to, to appear. At this point, it's novel. And I'm stuck on this little 200, 250 meter bump for the better part of two weeks. And mm. I tried probably, uh, I don't know, 10 times, 11 times to fly away from it from there. But I could never get more than about 10, 10 12 kilometers before the incredibly strong wind would basically just ground me. Um, and walking back to that same bump was my nearest next potential launch. Walking forward didn't make sense because of how far I was gonna have to walk to be able to access something that I could actually launch off. So again, I'm stuck for, for, for two weeks. So now you've got three weeks going by and we haven't made you know, even 100 kilometers out of 3,000. And the time limit on this thing is basically five months. I have to finish it in five months because that puts me at the end of August. After then, you're not doing any cross-country flying in North America. It's, uh, you know, it's getting too, too windy, too stable. And so I'm watching my time just kind of tick away, but my distance is not proportionate to that at all. Benjamin, I I have to stop you there because when we talked to you last time on the uh, the Canadian Rockies, you were you would say that you would be stuck on a mountain for a week at a time for for weather to clear for smoke to clear and your your stories from that are some of the most frequent stories I retell from the podcast to other people, and what you're telling me now is even crazier about the 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 patience and the the time waiting. You know, you you mentioned some of the the you know staying zen and, and not beating yourself up about something you can't control, but that is almost just as fascinating as you flying is the the, the ability to sit there and wait. Um, it's that it's I don't crazy. I don't know anyone else that has that chance in life. You know what I'm saying? At your age, I, doing I, what you're doing to say, I have to sit here for two weeks. That's that's so wild I, to me. It's like a Buddhist monk. Or I was going to say I, the I'm only not. thing I can think of is a monk, and it's self-imposed, right? And so that's the craziest part, because I, you know, the thing too, and 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 again, this is I think really valuable for for anyone that does any, anything in in their life, uh, sports or not sports. But like, I am not the best paraglider. I'm not the best hiker, mountaineer, survival guy. I'm not any. I'm not the best in any one area, but the reason that I'm able to do this is literally the, the difference between me and all these other people that may be better at all of these different things that are important to be good at to do something like this is that I'll just sit there and wait <laughs> because I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm stubborn or I don't have anything better to do. I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, it, I'm st- I, I feel like I'm just so dedicated to doing what it is that I set out to do. And I feel like I'm having bad luck, but that good look, that good luck is right around the corner. And if I'm not here ready, if I'm not here ready for it, I'm going to miss it. So 
in the end, that was true. In the end, that 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 was true. But it it didn't get good so fast. I flew uh, from there. I had a maybe a forty k uh, up to around Tucson, and then I had a huge flight for for me at that point because I had been having all these bad little flights of like ten kilometers. I flew maybe hundred and ten kilometers north of there, and um, I was so excited. I thought like, okay, this is it, you know. And we're at this area, uh, basically it's the Gila River uh, that goes through this small town called Winkleman that was washed away by the by the Gila River, like in the 90s. And that's where I think, you know, okay, we just had a 110K flight, we're about to get going. And again, I'm stuck there now. I'm stuck there for like a week and a half. It is the lowest point of the entire expedition, like elevation-wise, I think it's about 500 meters. It is hot as balls. They're having a heat wave, the hot, the, the hottest May that they've had in Tucson um, since, like, I don't know, they started recording temperature. It was like 110 or something like that, which may not sound like a lot to some people, but to a Canadian, boy, oh boy, that's hot. Mm -hmm. I've never felt anything like it. I felt like I was in a sauna all day. And here I am trying to hike up this dry ass cactus laden mountain. This is where they got the saguaro cactuses. They're like telephone poles of death and um, agave everywhere poking you that had like this poisonous sap. And I'm trying to make my way up this mountain to this little area I cleared and I'm launching day after day in this heat and same thing, wind. And even though the sun is out, it's the desert, um, something about the insane amount of heat makes it such that the thermals aren't able to build and rise because there's not enough of a, of a temperature gradient from low to high. That's what you need for that, for that heat to rise. It needs an incentive to go up into colder air. If it's hot everywhere, it doesn't actually rise. So now I'm stuck in, in, in Winkleman, sort of in this cactus salad, pulling off really short flights, almost dying on every landing, not by anything other than the fact that I'm landing in cactus constantly. It's poking me with sap. And I have to, for the first time, suck it up and do what I didn't want to do, which is to walk. Not super far, I realize now, because um, I didn't realize what super far it was at that point. But I walked about 60 kilometers to get north um, of where I was, basically just some mountains that are east of Phoenix. And I should say that um, when I set out on this expedition, I, I, I had this question in mind, which is, you know, what, what makes the monarch journey possible for the monarch? What wisdom do they have that allows them to, against all odds, complete this, uh, you know, harrowing journey? from Mexico to Canada. And what can I experience and what can I learn from trying to pull that off myself? So in this, you know, at, at first I thought what I was learning was patience. And I, and I was telling myself, okay, that's, that's, that's one thing the monarch has to do. They're also flying a very slow aircraft. If it gets too windy, they have to land, they have to wait. That's exactly what I'm doing. And in this case, you know, okay, the monarchs don't walk, but I walk and I realize that, you know, you have to do what you have to do. 
that the objective is to move forward and it, you know, it's not, I was really getting caught up in my own pride in terms of, you know, just wanting to have flown the whole way. Cause I wanted all the, you know, pilots in, you know, in the world and in the United States to hear about the story and be like, whoa, he flew the whole way, you know? So that was a big one for me um, to just sort of get over. And it really freed me up because from the superstition mountains, which are the big mountain, bigger mountains, uh, more what I'm used to that are east of Phoenix, the expedition really got going. I was pulling off, you know, 50k, 60k flights, uh, pretty much every second day. Um, to my delight, the cactus went away when we got a little bit higher. You know, now all of a sudden I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, flying north north of there, uh, east of the Grand Canyon, just kind of flying over the Navajo lands. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm basically just knocking on Utah's door. So, you know, just kind of sucking it up and, and taking those, those few steps just to get myself a little bit further along was really what I needed to be able to do. Um, and although I was still behind schedule, um, as far as distance, covered for like percentage of the distance that I covered versus percentage of the time that I had left in the season. Um, I was starting to feel a lot better. And yeah, I mean, Utah is just, is beautiful. Like um, I had to walk some portions of that too, which made the other walking seem like nothing because of the national parks. I'm not able to fly across or uh, fly, fly within uh, monuments or parks. So I walked across uh, basically Grand Staircase um, and Zion National Park to get uh, to an area just north of St. George, Utah. And that's really where things got, got good. I mean, Utah is the epicenter of paragliding in the United States for a reason. I mean, it's just full of awesome mountains and awesome access to those mountains. And so I'd never really been there before, but... I was stoked to be there and pretty much dead set on laying down some really impressive flights. And that brings me to um, an important experience that I had. We got to this mountain called Monroe Peak, which is near Richfield, Utah, uh, maybe about 200 clicks south of Salt Lake City. And Monroe Peak is unique because of a couple reasons. One, it's the first launch that I'm going to fly on the entire expedition where I'm not just clearing a tiny little patch on the side of a mountain and just, you know, throwing a Hail Mary to get off. This is an established paragliding launch. This is a place where people have been flying for, you know, 30 years or more. This is a place where some of the longest flights in Utah or in the United States have originated from. So... I'm up on Monroe Peak. It's like 3,400 meters, something super high, and I'm stoked. And because it's an actual launch and there's you know a road going up it, other pilots are also there. So I'm a little bit intimidated. I don't want anyone to know what I'm doing because that's a whole other story. Um, I won't get into it, but I kind of just casually launch and you know spin around and look to see what other, other pilots are doing. The other pilots don't really seem to be going anywhere. It's a bit windy, but the wind is from the south, so that's not going to hurt my northern travel, I thought. So I head north, 
And to my surprise, I look behind me and there's another pilot and he's kind of chasing me. And he's on a similar glider to what I'm flying. So I'm thinking, oh, this could be all right. You know, this is kind of different. You know, we're going to fly together. You know, we can help each other find lift. You know, this could be a really big flight. And so, you know, we're going and for a while I'm doing a little bit better than he is. And I'm kind of, you know, got a bit of a chip on my shoulder thinking like, yeah, that's right. You know, I've been out here for like two months now flying, you know, every day I can, like, you know, of course I'm, I'm badass, you know, and I keep going and, you know, he catch up to me and then he gets a climb and I join him and, you know, I keep going, but I'm kind of leading out front and I'm getting lower and lower at some point. And I look behind me and he is just getting screaming high in this climb. And I turn around to try to get back to where he's at. He's not too far behind, but the wind is so strong now that I can't even get there. And so I realize I have to turn around and find my own climb somewhere out front, somewhere further north, but I don't find one. And I end up in this canyon. I end up landing backwards in this canyon because the wind is so strong. I'm moving backwards when, I, when my feet touch the ground. And I look up and I see him just a dot under the clouds and he's going north past me now. So I'm feeling like a bit of a fit. I'm feeling like a lot of a failure right now because I was cocky and pushed out in front of him when I should have stuck with him. And, you know, he turned out to be sort of, I guess, the turtle that, you know, appeared to be winning the race. But the craziest thing was now I'm hiking out of this canyon, found some water, hiked out of the canyon, and I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to launch from next. And I'm thinking, all right, well, I've got to walk about four... I've flown about 40 kilometers. I can't, I can't walk back to Monroe Peak. I'm going to walk to the next potential mountain that I could launch off, which because they're smaller in that area, I have to walk about 40 kilometers north. So it's going to take me all night. And I look on my phone to see if he posted his track to this sort of, it's kind of like social networking for paragliders, where they share their tracks after they fly. And he posted his flight. And you know, keep in mind, I flew, I flew about 40 kilometers that day. I wish I hadn't looked. He flew 160 kilometers. He flew four times the distance that I had flown. And he was in the sky for another four hours. I'd only flown for about an hour that day. So at that point, my ego is just like reduced to like the size of a raisin. And it's bruised. And I'm tossing and turning in my tent at the end just at the mouth of the canyon that I walked out and I'm trying to figure out like, all right, do I go North or do I go back South? Cause if I go back South, which is completely counterintuitive, I can fly again from Monroe peak and I can just delete my track log and never share that track log. And maybe I can fly 160 kilometers myself and no one will have to know that, you know, Benjamin Jordan flew a quarter of the distance of some local pilot uh, when he came through Monroe Peak on his expedition. And, you know, if, but, but if I do go north, if I, if I do just keep walking, then that's, you know, then that's the story. And I realize that I'm stuck between this rock and this hard place because I, part of me wants to, to, to go back to erase this from history. But that part of, I, I realized that that part of me is so hell bent on trying to appear better than I am 
then this other part of me that tells me that I should just walk forward is essentially saying like, I am only as good as I am and I'm not as good as that other pilot. And I appreciate what an egomaniac I must sound like right now, but I just want to be honest about, about this experience because for me, it was very real. I was about to walk 40 kilometers back. It would have taken me an entire day back on an expedition where I'm already behind schedule in order to hide my footsteps that I was ashamed of. And fortunately, I don't know what happened, but some sense got into me and probably just because I couldn't like legitimately tell Lindsay that that's what I was going to do. <laughs> she would have, right. she would have freaked out <laughs> that I, I chose to go North and, and that was hard, but here's the craziest thing. From that next spot, about 40 kilometers north, just south of the Wasatch uh, range, um, I had an amazing flight north to around Provo. And then a couple days later, north to around uh, uh, Sandy. And then again to Salt Lake City. And then again to Bountiful. And then again to Ogden. The flights just kept stacking up from that point where I'd walked uh, 40 kilometers north. And it was during that walk to that point that I asked myself, okay, like, how does this relate to the butterfly journey? Like, what am I missing here that's making this so hard that could maybe be so easy? And I asked myself if I could reframe this whole thing to be more like the monarch's expedition or migration. And I realized that, you know, the, the monarch, you know, when they fly to Canada, it's not just one monarch, you know, with a bunch of sponsors flying to Canada. It's a million or five million or whatever it is that year, monarchs flying to Canada. And they're not all going to make it, but they all do it anyway. And they're doing it not as individuals, but they're doing it as a community. They're doing it as a species. They're doing it because it's what moves their species forward. And so I asked myself, like, could I do this? Could I be doing this not just for me, but could I do this for paragliders, for all paragliders, not just in the States, but all across the world? Could I do this for all sportsmen and all sportswomen? Could I, could I do this from, for our species as something that could inspire everybody? And as soon as I asked myself that, it felt a lot, I don't know, it felt a lot less heavy. And I didn't feel so much like I'd failed inside of not being able to pull off a flight as big as, you know, Billy Bob. I felt like I was succeeding because regardless of the conditions, I was continuing to move forward however I could. And that was so rewarded by this series of flights that followed almost every single day. Now I'm hiking, flying, sleeping, eating, hiking, flying, sleeping, eating, hiking, flying, sleeping, eating, kind of in this meditative cycle of doing this thing that I absolutely love and being completely immersed in it. And maybe not flying 160 kilometers ever. I never did. In fact, I never flew further than that one big flight I did down in Arizona, 110 kilometers. 
Most of these flights are 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers. But now I'm flying every single day or just about for a month and for, for like for an entire month, for the whole month of July. So very quickly now I'm in Idaho and I've made up all the time I lost down in Arizona. And for the first time ever, I'm not thinking that I'm in the middle of some expedition that I'm not going to be able to finish for the first time ever. Now I've passed the halfway mark and I'm thinking like, okay, no, this could actually happen. Like this could actually happen. It's just a matter of mindset. And it's a matter of not making this about me, but making this about everyone who can be inspired by this. And also doing this out of respect for everyone who's inspired me. And that was just this really, really, really big page turning moment for me in the expedition. And really, I think what set the whole thing on fire in terms of going from likely failure to likely success. This is incredibly inspiring and exciting. Does it, does it just give you a totally new perspective or obviously an appreciation for what the monarch butterflies do, but I mean, did it answer those questions for you as, as you got closer towards the end? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, the thing that I, I really started to, to glean from the, you know, imagining the monarch journey as I went about my own is that, these, you know, these guys, they're, they're setting out on a journey that I, I then realized was a lot like how I felt in the beginning, where I was leaving Mexico feeling like I needed to do this thing. It was inside of me. And there was nothing that I could do to get it outside of me other than to just do it. But that my fate was certainly that I was never going to succeed. And, and to, to contend with that and how that just seems so counterintuitive to me as a human. I, I, don't, I don't do that. I, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but for my whole life, I've just been trained to try to, you know, do things that I know I can do or that I'm pretty sure I can do. And then this was something I was pretty sure I couldn't. But I realized then that those monarchs, they are leaving Mexico for Canada and they have that same feeling probably because they're not going to make it. They have to procreate. They have to die in order for their children to be able to continue going. And those children, heck, they're not going to make it either. They can just keep going as far as they can keep going, regardless of the conditions, do as best as they can. And then they got to procreate again. And then, and only then, will their children be able to reach Canada? And so in many ways, I, that's what was happening to me too, because the guy who I was when I left that fence in Mexico, that guy died. That guy died, I don't know, somewhere in Arizona, probably when I realized that I was going to have to walk some. Hmm. And then he died, he died again. He died again when he realized that this is not about him, that this is, this is about everyone. In fact, this might be about something even greater than everyone, but that's as big as my little human brain can, can sort of imagine right now. And so there I am now in Idaho and I'm thinking like, all right, well, when is this bee going to die? 
because this me is going to have to die prob probably at least once more if I'm going to make it the rest of the way. I've still got about, you know, 1,500 kilometers to go here to reach the border. And so, man, I mean, Idaho, geez, I, you know, I thought I just, when I, when I, when, when I hear Idaho, I just think potatoes, you know, I just think, well, oh, I'm going to have to get some poutine or, you know, some potato chips, you know, something local when I get through it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't realize how epic Idaho is. I and feel like crazy. it's one of the most underrated places in the country, in the U.S. Oh my goodness. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a paraglider or a hiker or I don't know, just like knitting, I, like do it in Idaho. Because there's so many cool things to see the, the down further south. It's kind of these uh, more undulating, but still very beautiful uh, mountains, um, kind of grassy. And then there's this weird flat area that I'll tell you about in the middle that I found by accident. And then these incredible mountains to the north. So in the middle, I flew, I flew all the way to uh, an area called like Blackfoot, just south of uh, Idaho Falls, the city of Idaho Falls. And I couldn't relaunch because now I've got about a hundred kilometers stretch of just completely flat area. And I don't know why, but it's completely un unpopulated in the middle. But I'm trying to get to this town called Arco, northwest of there. Um, and I'm just going to beeline it basically right through the middle taking some farm roads and then eventually just walking through the desert. And on my way, there is, um, by doing this, I'm saving several days of walking by just going straight across the desert, even though it's a bit slower. Um, in the middle, I realized that there's this like lone peak, um, looks like a bit of a volcano. It's called East Butte. And it's only about 200 meters, but it's steep as all heck. And, um, I decided, well, I may be able to launch from there and be able to fly the remaining half of this flat portion to the, to the Rockies. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just try to hit that on the way. And so I'm walking towards it, walking towards it. And I'm kind of getting this weird feeling in my gut, but like literally like a weird feeling in my gut. And, um, for whatever reason, my cell phone's not working, so I can't communicate with Lindsay. For whatever reason, my Garmin inReach isn't working. And so I am just walking towards this mountain, and I don't know if she knows where I am. She usually tracks me on my inReach and then usually tries to meet me at whatever mountain I'm at so she can get the drone out and fly it around while I'm launching. And I get to this mountain. It's got all these towers on top of it. Like I'm thinking like, this, that's weird. Why don't I have any cell reception here? There's all these towers. I, I finally get to the top. It's not very tall, but it takes me a long time because of the, uh, how steep it is. And I'm finally able to reach Lindsay. And Lindsay is frantic because she can't get to where I'm at with her vehicle because it's completely boarded off. It says government property, no trespassing. And although it's not marked on any of the maps that I've got, she finds a map that shows that I am smack dab in the middle <clears throat> of what's called the Idaho National Laboratory. <clears throat> and we don't know what this thing is, but she says there's like black suburbans everywhere with like heavy tinted windows with government plates and 
people are driving slow past her. She's pulled off on the side of the road. And now I'm up on this thing and I'm thinking like, all right, well, I'm just going to try to fly out of here. And, you know, worst case scenario, I'll just fly to the highway and then I'll just keep walking. Anyway, I get, get my paraglider out, clip in. Cycles are very strong coming up the hill. So I'm thinking like, okay, this is going to be good. And I launched the paraglider and all of a sudden, everything just feels super weird. Like I've been flying every day for last month almost. And I've never felt anything like this. Not very high off the ground. This is a very small mountain. I realized like I just need to get to the ground as fast as possible. Something is wrong with my, my paraglider. I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, the left side goes in. Like this is a, a, a wing that can fold up. So, but it's kind of like the equivalent when you get a deflation on one side, it's like you're in an airplane and then all of a sudden you look at the, the left side and the left wing is gone. Like that's not a good situation. So fortunately these <clears throat> paragliders, they're designed to, to reinflate, but then boom, I lose the right side. Then it comes back, then boom, the whole center goes, it folds under. So I'm just self literally thinking like, okay, I just gotta get down, I just gotta get down. This is not safe. I'm too close to the ground. This is how people get hurt. So I get to the ground. My flight lasts a, a total of a terrifying 50 seconds. I fly like half a kilometer. And I hike out of there as fast as I can. And just as I get to the highway, I pass this massive billboard underneath. And then I look up at it. And it's got this huge sign with an arrow that points to where I was at. And it says... Um, nuclear waste or radioactive waste management site. And what I quickly realized that happened is I had trespassed into one of the most secured areas that I've ever, you know, come across. And it's the world's largest center for um, nuclear reactor testing the I already said in the world, but like the, it's the Earth's largest nuclear reactor testing facility. And so the sick to my stomach feeling that I got and all of the problems that I was having with my phone and my inReach was entirely due to the intense amount of radioactive energy that I was being exposed to. And so I got the hell out of there as fast as I could. But it was just the, the, the craziest, the craziest thing. And you know, I, I can appreciate why there's nothing growing out there and why no one lives out there. <clears throat> the, only the only town anywhere close to there is called Atomic City, of all names. And when I walk past there, um, I realize that there's really no one that lives there. Apparently there's 13 residents, but I didn't see them. All you can see are these, like, what appear to be fallout shelters, uh, sort of on the side of the road. And... Uh, and some interesting history, no doubt. So, you know, Idaho, not just potatoes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I eventually did make it north to, to Arco, actually the next day. And my God, what an amazing, amazing place. That was really the start of what I felt like would be the rest of the journey. Because, you know, I cut my teeth on the Rocky Mountains up in Canada. And now here I am finally at these mountains that I can see on my map will ultimately connect to the Rocky Mountains of Canada. No more flats, no more monkeying around with little volcanoes and little bumps, you know, here and there, just big, long mountain ranges. 
And, uh, you know, what I felt would be like a rocky kind of red carpet to my homeland. Was it? No. <laughs> no. In, in fact, it, it, it wasn't. Um, geez. I mean, what, what, what story can I, let me just say that it was epic. Some of the flights were absolutely insane. Um, I landed you know, at times way high up in the wilderness um, in some of these mountains in Idaho and would have to wait out, you know, a couple days of storms. Finally, it started raining. It hadn't rained the whole expedition uh, before being able to fly along. But finally, I made it to the Continental Divide. Uh, so I was so, so excited. And um, because of the pandemic and the raging wildfires down in California, Around the time that we got to the Idaho-Montana border, um, Lindsay had to go back and help her family in California. So um, she wasn't able to continue on into Montana with me. Uh, she needed to, to be down in California helping out with some family stuff. And, uh, and so that, that had to happen. But the craziest thing, that I didn't expect would happen is that about two weeks into me being into Montana, I'm about halfway through Montana getting, you know, literally within maybe 200 kilometers of Canada. Now the wildfire smoke from California had blown all the way Northeast to Montana. And I was literally just stuck underneath a sky of ash, unable to move sort of wondering like, is this it? Is this how far I got? You know, is, is the moral of this story that like, you just got to try and, and do your best and, and, and am I supposed to walk from here? Or am I supposed to take the patience lesson and just sit here and wait? And so kind of looked around me and I, I thought, well, I've been stuck on this mountain here now for four days. I'm completely out of, or I'm almost out of food. If I don't uh, hike down this mountain and try to hike to, you know, a gas station or something, basically today, I'm going to run out of food in about 48 hours. And I don't know when the smoke is going to clear. So I was faced with this difficult choice because I knew if I hiked down that I'd probably just keep hiking and I would just hike the rest of the journey. And that's really not how I wanted to end the journey. So again, I just sort of asked myself, all right, well, like, what would the monarch do in this situation? Like, what would it do? It's almost where it needs to go, but the conditions are not allowing it to get there. And I thought to myself, well, the monarch is different than me. The monarch doesn't have to go to the gas station or to the Costco or whatever to get food. The monarch just, you know, finds some milkweed or some, some nectar and, and it, it does its thing. Again, this may just seem completely obvious to everyone, but it, it wasn't obvious to me in the moment that, you know, I'm not that different than the monarch, although I wasn't brought up, you know, foraging for milkweed and, and nectar. Uh, and I was brought up instead, you know, being taught how to earn a living so I can go to the Costco and buy what I need, that I'm a lot like the monarch in that I was, you know, born of this earth you know, from our human natural desire to procreate. And I'm a part of that same flow. And, you know, my ancestors 
would have just looked around them and trusted that mother nature would provide. And so I decided that I could try that and I could realize that like this smoke is not a problem. It's a natural occurrence. Same as I'm a natural occurrence, same as this awesome lake that I found a camp beside is a natural occurrence. And I just need to look around me a little bit harder and I'll be able to find what I need to be able to exist here in mother nature. And that I can let her run the show instead of trying to run her. And that's what I did. And um, I kind of moved around a little bit and I realized that there were certain areas where there was just an insane amount of blueberries growing. This is kind of late August in Montana in the Rockies. And all of a sudden I'm a blueberry connoisseur. I'm eating like five pints of blueberries a day and doing all sorts of things with them, eating them raw, heating them up, turning them into like blueberry juice. I'm doing so much with the blueberries. I don't even know what it means to be antioxidized, but like <laughs> I was the epitome of what it means to be antioxidized. You were so antioxidized. It was not even funny. <laughs> it was not, it was not funny. No. And, uh, you know, that worked really, really well, uh, with the exception of some, let's say mild hallucinations. Um, I was doing great on blueberries and I lasted on blueberries for about two weeks time. And in that two weeks, um, I was able to squeak in, I guess it was three uh, medium length flights. And next thing you know, I'm landing at the Canadian border and uh, really feeling like that, that last me had died and that the final version of me, the final metamorphosis of, of me made it in a state of complete surrender to the natural world, to the greatness of, of this natural world around me, instead of realizing that like, as much as I try to, you know, use my brake toggles and use my brain and use my smartphone and use my forecasting and my inReach to be in control of the situation, that the reality is that I was never once in control of this situation. Not on this expedition, not on my life. That at the end of the day, I'm just like the monarch in a gust of wind. I, you know, I'm along for the ride. And that the best thing I can do for myself and the people around me is just be, you know, the monarch that is enjoying that ride and, you know, hoping for the best because this thing could have gone any which way. But after 150 days, uh, you know, a whole hell of a lot of peanut butter and like probably like 50 pints of blueberries. I flew and hiked, uh, but mostly flew a total of, I think it was 280, 2,835 kilometers from Mexico to Canada. And uh, yeah, I got a pizza. <laughs> I, got, I got a pizza. The best adventure meal available. Yeah, no, I, I got a pizza at the gas. There was a gas station right there. I got a pizza and uh, yeah, had to explain to the border guard, like, hey, like, I'm Canadian. I'm coming. I'm coming home. You know, it, when he asked me where I'd been, it was it was it was kind of difficult. You know, I, I just said, yeah, I've just been I've just been paragliding. You know? <laughs> 
What a variety, too, on this route, you know? What a variety that the monarchs see, because with the endless chain, you know, it's a, it's a lot of gorgeous Canadian Rockies. With this, you're, you're starting out at the border of Mexico, man. That's a desert, and you're finishing eating pounds of blueberries out in the wild on, on, on these alpine mountains. It's it, And going through Utah and Idaho and all the canyon lands and, and, and all of that, what a, what a variety to see on that 3,000 kilometers. I feel, yeah, I, I, I feel, especially being able to just share it like, like I am right now with you and, and your listeners, I, I feel like the, the luckiest guy I know um, to be able to have experienced this. I, you know, I, I never remember how amazing it is just to be outside and to live outside like that until, um, until I'm doing it, you know? And so just try to, you know, keep that finger on my string or my string on my finger rather to remember to make sure that, you know, this summer, you know, this spring, this fall that I, I get, I get a good dose of that as well. Yeah. Cause well, it uh, seems like the pandemic was ex- extra interesting uh, for you um, on a totally different, for totally different reasons. C- could you yeah. um, explain to us or just tell us, I know, I know you've got a film coming out. Can, can you talk about that? What, what to expect? What, what, what kind of answers or questions does the film answer or what, what to expect when watching that? And also maybe your last most, most vivid, lesson you learned doing this all right cool well so uh right now um and for the past really six months i've just had my head down uh editing this massive massive film project uh it's gonna be a super fun um you know action-packed but also lots of scary stuff lots of funny stuff uh documentary uh that i produced with my awesome partner, Lindsay. Um, that'll be coming out in two forms. Uh, we've got a pre-release of, of the documentary that's going to be coming out on May 6th. That is kind of like your Kickstarter, get to see an early version of the film. And then um, all of those people will get to also uh, download the final version in November of this year. Um, or they can just wait for that but then they won't get all the extra cool stuff. So check out flymonarcha.com. It has so many of the stories that I've shared with, uh, with Mason today, um, but with crazy visuals that you will not believe, um, including lots of really great air to air stuff that Lindsay was able to shoot with the drone and some stuff that I didn't say, because, you know, I got to say something for the movie. So flymonarcha.com and, um, also, there you can find photographs, uh, cool hand-drawn adventure maps, um, track logs, if you're into that, if you want to see exactly where I hiked, exactly where I flew, you can see all that kind of stuff too. Um, and something that's really important, we've got a call to action uh, there as well, which is that we want to encourage people, especially people uh, living in North America, to plant milkweed seeds. Because I didn't get into it, but essentially this whole project is has a sort of a uh, environmental edge, which is that we want to let people know that this monarch species that's been doing this incredible migratory route for millions and millions of years, uh, you know, any year now could be their last. Uh, if you look at their numbers, they've lost uh, 90% uh, in the last 20 years. 
Uh, and that's all due to the monoculture farming that we're doing, um, you know, across North America and the eradication of milkweed, which is the only uh, fruit that their offspring can eat. So the solution is very simple, is that everyone just plant a few milkweed seeds in their yard. And the side effect is that they get to have butterflies coming around their house and they get to feel awesome. Oh yeah. Who wouldn't want that? And this inspiring species that has so much to offer. Like, I mean, look, look what it offered me, you know, goodness knows what it could offer everyone else. Um, on top of just being an important part of our, our ecosystem, we'll get to live on. And then our children get to see that and their children get to see that and their children get to see that. So that is what's going on. That's all at flymonarcha.com. And that little bit about, you know, taking care of things uh, like planting, you know, a few milkweed seeds so that our great, great, great grandchildren get to experience monarchs is really my big takeaway from this whole thing. It's that like monarchs, we humans can live, you know, life either as I was living, which is that I'm here for me because I need to record my greatness to leave my legacy so that people don't forget me. Or we or I can live like monarchs live, which is that I am here, yes, but I am here for we. And I am here working as hard as I can, but all of that work is entirely uh, focused on creating a better situation for the next me. The, uh, and, and all of their work is going to be focused entirely on creating a better situation, a better circumstance. In this case, it's just flying north, but that's not just, that's amazing that they do that for the next version of them. And the monarch has really shown me that and has transformed me from someone who only thought about me from someone who thinks about everyone and not just everyone that's alive right now. Yeah, they're important. But what's really important is everyone who's going to be alive in a hundred years. And uh, to, to really put that into perspective and to understand that that's what my life is about. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's actually about them that are coming. And that if I can help people appreciate that fundamental feeling, then I feel like we're, uh, you know, all a uh, significant step closer to doing what seems to be the impossible task, which is taking care of this home that we all share. Mm. Wonderfully said, wonderfully said. So we know where to check out the film. We know what to do, an action step to take, plant some milkweed. It's beautiful, by the way. Um, I saw a monarch recently, and uh, I remember we were talking, and I thought, it's unbelievable that, that, that all of that is inside that small little paper-thin creature. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Well, Benjamin, I, it was another just complete grand slam of an episode of an interview. Um, I'm inspired. I'm, I'm, I don't even know what to do with this excitement, but that was, uh, I just can't even imagine the feeling of being able to fly like that and be able to 
retrace the, the steps of one of science's most, one of the world's most mysterious phenomenons. Oh, great. Well, I'm, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I'm so delighted to be able to, to share this way and, you know, through, through your, your medium. So thank you so much yeah. for having me on and for taking the time to hear my stories. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.